welcome to Literary Prospects, where we talk to authors and other literary professionals about books, publishing, and their writing life. I'm Kelly Vick, the host of the program, and it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, debut author, Daniel Turtel. Daniel Turtel grew up on the Jersey Shore. He graduated from Duke University in 2013 with a degree in mathematics and is currently pursuing an MFA at the New School. In 2020, his then-unpublished novel, Greetings from Asbury Park, was awarded the Faulkner Society's Best Novel Award. The book was recently released by Blackstone Publishing. Daniel's writing has appeared in the Baltimore Review and won numerous awards. He now lives in New York City. Greetings from Asbury Park is his debut novel. Daniel Turtel, thank you for being here today and congratulations on publication of your first novel, Greetings from Asbury Park. Um, it's getting some great buzz, and I'd like to start out by reading a few blurbs and reviews, if that's okay. Pulitzer Prize winner Juno Diaz says, it's a novel to be cherished, a blazing summer for the heart and mind. New York Times bestselling author Tom Parada calls it a remarkable debut from a talented writer, ambitious, moving, full of complicated, thorny characters, and enough Jersey Shore ambiance that you can almost smell the boardwalk. New York Journal of Books says it's a pithy, enjoyable, modern day story from start to finish with a cast of fully realized characters you'll champion to the end, and book lists says, Turtel captures the smells and sounds of Asbury Park vividly, relating the look and feel of mundane, oft-overlooked details with language that renders them anew. Everyone struggles here, but the depiction is sublime. So with that, let's, um, let's dive in. Can you, uh, what can you tell us about uh, Greetings from Asbury Park? Yeah, so first, thank you so much for having me here. Um, it's it's an interesting you know story and it's an interesting place. So a lot of the you know like Juno Diaz and uh, Tom Parada who are on that that list, um, they're both authors that are you know writing you know either from or about Jersey. Uh, but but the Jersey Shore to me has always been this like really overlooked place that when people think of the Jersey Shore they think more of you know reality TV and uh, you know <laughs> all that. Um, <laughs> Asbury Park is like a really kind of unique place it's um it's this weird convergence of you know of different races different religions different like socioeconomic backgrounds um and it happens in a really natural way and especially now i think people are really grasping to find like you know these these uh settings that that combine all these different things in and it kind of comes off artificially sometimes and asbury park has that just naturally sitting there uh so you know i grew up there i always wanted to write about the jersey shore um, Greetings from Asbury Park started out as a group of like vignettes, uh, little short stories kind of in the, you know, tradition of like Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio. Um, and over time, they just kind of came together into this novel and, uh, yeah, there it is. What, um, what can you tell us about the, the story without giving too much away, of course? Yeah, so um, Greetings from Asbury Park centers on you know three half siblings as they you know they confront the death of a distant bullying patriarch. Uh, he he dies actually you know before the action starts. Um, he leaves them all with very different inheritances, um, and they have to you know navigate the world and they're kind of tied to one another um, because of their memory of him, because of their you know just 
who they are, but also largely because of you know what he leaves them, um, the bind and mess that he leaves them in. Um, unexpected you know relationships pop up between them and between you know the world as they interact with it. Uh, but really, it's about the three of them kind of finding their way in the world, um, figuring out you know a, a moral relationship with each other, um, with the world, and the world is represented in this scenario by you know the town that they're that they're all living in. Beyond the the setting, um, what was sort of the inspiration for for the story? How did you how did you come about thinking about these three siblings and and what they're grappling with? Um, a lot of the issues that you know they are dealing with are also really topical. Um, you know, one of them is struggling with drug abuse. Um, the other two are kind of kind of dealing with this like, you know, mid 2020 only. Um, and yeah, I, I think I, you know, again, you know, it started off as several short stories. So pieces came up in like, you know, this music era and there's a lot of music in the book um, that's coming from Asbury Park. So there's parts that like tell stories of, you know, certain band members. I think the best way to like think about the novel is in two separate relationships. The one is between um, Casey, who's the only person who we actually see as the narrator at any given time. Mm -hmm. um, the, the story is mostly told in third person, but he has a couple of first person, um, first person areas. And so Casey has his relationships with his two siblings. The first is his older brother, David, um, who's his half brother. And you see kind of most starkly the differences between the two inheritances there. Uh, David is given the bulk of his father's estate and, you know, his father for all of his, you know, shortcomings as a human being was very wealthy. Um, so David is the inheritor of, uh, you know, the bulk of this estate, kind of vast wealth, uh, but he doesn't really know what to do with it. Um, he's very, very lost. He grapples with um, several things among them, his own sexuality, um, whereas Casey is definitely more self-assured, uh, definitely more of a chip on his shoulder. Um, then there's Casey's relationship with Gabrielle, uh, who's his half-sister. Um, and one of the interesting things about this is that neither of you know, Casey nor David know that Gabrielle exists until after the father passes away. Casey inherits this house in Asbury Park, um, which is not an area that we get the sense that their father would have frequented. Um, and they don't really know what to expect at this house. Um, and Casey kind of goes there. It's the only thing that he inherits from his father. And um, he finds basically this hidden family living there. Uh, and, and him and Gabrielle, you know, they both have, you know, kind of vengeance against their father on their mind. Um, and they have this, you know, surprising relationship. Um, and they're kind of unsure what to make of it themselves. Um, Gabrielle is an aspiring musician. Um, she also wants to get out of Asbury Park. She wants to go to college. Um, and she doesn't see necessarily the means by which to do so. Um, without, you know, Casey and David's help and the money that they've inherited from their father. Um, and Casey in Gabrielle sees his position a little bit threatened because he's always, you know, for, for everything else, he's always been the one, um, you know, child born out of wedlock. And now he's sharing that status with somebody else. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lot for them to, to grapple with. You, you cover without giving too much away um, of the story again, but you do, you know, you, you deal with some quite taboo subject matter, if you will, um, in the story. Did you 
think about that when you were writing. Did you ever wonder, um, oh, am I taking this too far? Or how far can I push this? Or how did that manifest? Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> After I finished writing. <laughs> I, it's going to be hard to talk about it without just saying that there's like, you know, at least the implication of an ancestral relationship here. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, I think that's fine to say. I think it's, okay. it's fairly, you know, upfront about the, uh, you know, in the novel. Um, one of the things and one of the questions that I wanted, you know, to be asked by that is, you know, right now, you know, especially in, in you know, American fiction, um, there's a huge amount of, uh, of, of, of like gravity placed on you know crossing cultural boundaries that we see to be um, unfair, uh, but there's not that much that's like okay, well, why is this unfair? Why is this you know? And I'm not saying that I think cultural you know taboo around incest is incorrect, um, but it's an interesting thing to look at, and it's really difficult in American fiction, at least to construct a scenario in which there's a transgression that we're actually questioning. And for instance, when you know you see in American fiction now um, an interracial couple or a gay couple, no one, um, you know, it, it's, it's typically taking the stance like the author and the reader are both agreeing together, this is really unjust. Um, and we're looking at this injustice together. And this is a story of these characters overcoming pure injustice. Whereas, you know, you look at, you know, the past um, kind of classics that deal with, uh, that, that deal with um, interracial relationships, that deal with gay relationships. And a lot of them are writing at a time when it's by no means accepted. And it's a very different question to ask when it's accepted and when it's not. And when it's not accepted, it's asking the question, well, who gets to decide what two consenting adults get to do, you know? Um, and do they get to decide that themselves or if the rest of the world has this, you know, idea of morality, do they get to impose that on those people? And, you know, I, I, I think that very few people in history are imposing more, or that's probably an overstatement, but I don't think it's typical that people are, you know, Im imposing morals on somebody else because they want to be unfair and they want to be, um, oppressive. I think they are doing it out of a genuine, like they think this is the right way to do things. Mm -hmm. And it's worth taking something that still rubs us that way and saying, well, you know, why is this the right way to do things? And if they don't think it's the right way to do things, why did we get to tell them something else? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'll say that like in most relationships, in which you know a brother and a sister are contemplating something it would be inappropriate for a vast amount of reasons you know one of the most would be that growing up together they have you know this weird relationship of the one that's older or the one you know they can influence one another's psyches in development um this is a really carefully constructed scenario in which they both they meet as adults um they're both fully formed people they're not minors um they both know what they're doing. So does somebody else get to say, you know, no, I don't agree with this. This is wrong. Um, and it was a difficult thing to write because at times you feel like, yeah, you know what? I do feel that that's maybe wrong. 
Um, but do I get to impose that on other people? I don't know. It's uh, and I and I don't you know presume to answer the question. I just want to ask it. And you do it very skillfully. Um, and speaking to that skill, and uh, you touched on on the point of different points of view that. Uh, that you used earlier. And it's of course not unusual to see a novel that's coming from, from different points of view these days, but it was, I thought, um, unusual and done well that you, Casey is the only point of view that we hear in first person. And then we get some other um, generally closed thirds. So how did you make that decision? Why did you feel like it was important to hear Casey's voice in first person? Um, and how did you, how were you able to weave that together with, with the close third on, on the other characters? Yeah, so um, when I started writing it, at least, I think Casey was the, the head in which I felt most comfortable, you know, residing. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also, you know, another part of first person, which is it gives you the ability to be kind of an unreliable narrator. Um, you know, the first person perspective is, is riddled with bias. Um, and that's how I wanted Casey to be portrayed. Whereas I actually wanted to give most of the other people um, a little bit more authority so mm -hmm. that you're looking at Casey is doing things. Um, you see first through his eyes, you know, um, this kind of jaded point of view. And then the close third, why I love writing in close third and why, you know, I think for everything that I do from now on, I probably will, you know, keep that. Um, at least as, as a favorite, is that you you get this authority um, and there's a certain believability that comes with like the things that you're saying. Um, it's a third person, so it is, you know, these things are, are true, they're happening. Um, but you also get to really get inside someone else's mind and it gives you a little bit of an opportunity to showcase dissonance between the way that somebody's thinking and the way that the world is perceiving them. Um, Whereas Casey is so, you know, closed off in this like shell of his own ego and, you know, this defense mechanism that he throws up that he's not even really aware of the way that the world perceives him. Um, and he is, you know, a little bit out of touch, I think, with most of the people in the novel. And that is meant to come to a head in the somewhat surprising way that it ends, um, which he certainly didn't see coming. The title uh, also is the title of uh, Bruce Springsteen's debut album. I'm assuming that that did not happen by chance. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk a little about that? Yeah. So um, the first, I guess, uh, you know, on the Jersey Shore, like every town, um, and the towns tend to be really small. Asbury Park is one of the bigger ones. Um, but most of the towns are like four blocks wide, five blocks wide, something like that. Um, and most of them have painted like, you know, greetings from Monmouth Beach or greetings from whatever. Mm. Um, what's fun about the Asbury Park one is that, fun is a loaded word, but um, what, what's, <laughs> what's interesting I think about it is that, you know, that's certainly the most famous of the greetings froms. Um, and it's, also the most now kind of tinged with irony because um, Asbury Park is not the resort town or in 2000 or, you know, between 1970 and 2010s, um, Asbury Park was not 
the resort town that it used to be. It wasn't this, you know, bright, glitzy place with Tilly the Clown's face, um, you know, being representative of what was going on there. It was a place like really, really, you know, really fraught with like racial tensions, with socioeconomic tensions, um, with political problems, uh, extreme poverty, really bad schools. So you have like on the one hand, this greetings from Asbury Park, which is like really, you know, bright, shiny words. And um, there's a sense of dramatic irony where, you know, you're either looking at it from a time at which greetings from Asbury Park was an accurate way to represent this town, um, or it's just, you know, like you understand the dissonance. So it's, it's, it's kind of a loaded, um, a loaded phrase to describe like a really, really complex town in, you know, it's most euphemistic way, but it's, it's not really appropriate. Um, or it wasn't until the 2010s and now Asbury Park is now becoming, you know, once again, this very glitzy uh, resort town, um, which explodes in the summer and it's like filled with, you know, everybody from everywhere and um, recently, you know, crowds from New York and um, it's, you know, once again, on the beach blocks, it's like an amazing place to be, mm -hmm. but that's mm -hmm. still not necessarily true on the other side of Main Street. And um, and I'm not using Main Street metaphorically, like it is actually Main Street. <laughs> um, and, and that's kind of the dividing line. And it's still, you know, one of the worst public schools in the, in the state. It's still um, one of the most impoverished areas of the state. And the, you know, just like its problems were very confined to, you know, the limits of Asbury Park, so is the, you know, the whole rejuvenation going on now. So it's kind of a town that's always, you know, having friction with its neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and that's why, you know, greetings from Asbury Park is just such like, a fun title because it is not a bright shiny book um, by any stretch and yeah this is your first published novel but mm -hmm. it's not the first novel that you have written is that correct that is correct um so can can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's kind of important um, to make distinctions because so often the, the debut novel that is published is not the first novel that the author has written. So um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you wrote before and how this one came to be the one? Sure. Um, so I did not, I, I think I came to writing kind of late. Um, for a writer. I studied math in college and I kind of just had to take like a writing course uh, in my junior year um, to fulfill like a humanities requirement. And it, just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was like a total accident and it just kind of happened. So um, I felt like I had to play catch up and I did a lot of writing, a lot of really bad writing between like ages, you know, 22 and 25. And um, I think the first novel that I really finished, um, it got, you know, fourth place or something at the Faulkner Society Awards, which was a really nice, you know, side note, full circle coming um, with this one, because this one um, won it in 2020, um, which was really cool. And that's like kind of the first thing that gave me the confidence to keep going that, I, you know, um, and that one had, I, I, I think the 
protagonist's name was Casey Larkin also. And so there are certain things that are lifted, but there are, you know, certain things that are certainly not. And that one was mostly derivative of like on the road, I think. Um, and like almost embarrassingly so, like I'll go back and <laughs> I don't know if that's kosher. Um, but I like, you know, it wasn't my discretion that was like, oh no, this shouldn't be published. Like I certainly tried. Um, there was a lot of rejection. And I think that is, you know, I think you ask any published writer and they'll say that like one of the biggest things is you just like, you know, confidence in the face of rejection. And uh, there's a ton, a ton of rejection. Um, even with this book, I think, you know, there's taboo topics in it and it took a while to find, uh, you know, a publisher who is willing to, to, to go forward with all those. Um, and I'm really grateful that we did. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, so I, I guess this novel has some elements of the first one that I finished, um, but this is probably the fourth like full book that I, that I completed. And, um, and, you know, e it's not like four distinct books. I think each one has like a certain amount of the others and, you know, kind of, I took all the best parts of them and put them in this and the next few. Um, but yeah, I, I guess a lot of it was just like trying not to focus on, um, the rejections and I guess part of being able to psych myself into that was like, you know, you've not been doing this for that long. Um, and each book that you write is kind of like your own crash course writing topic, um, or your own crash course in writing, um, felt just like getting better all the time. And, uh, I, you know, very selectively chose to focus on that. And with, with this one, um, what was, you know, sort of the exact road to publication like for you? What happened with this one from, you know, you finish it up and then now it's on the shelves. Yeah. So, I'm trying to think of the actual timeline, but my agent, Michelle Tesler, um, who's awesome. She, I, I met her at the Faulkner Society Festival when this one as the novel in progress. Mm -hmm. And so she looked at like the first half of it and she was like, you know, when you're done, send it to me. Um, I finished it, you know, within a couple months and I sent it to her um, and we decided to go forward, which was great. Um, and, you know, I think it was like a, 25 or 26 year old that was like amazing like signed up with an agent like now it's just going to be like write me a you know 10 million dollar check for this book and, <laughs> um, you know fast forward like 18 months and uh again like this book saw a lot of rejection um and you know a lot of really nice rejection and a lot of things that were really complimentary but it's you know at the end of the day it's still like a no um and, you know, I actually credit Michelle um, with, she was like, no, this is like, this is great. We're going to find a publisher for this. Um, and, I, you know, I, I don't know what is typical, um, but it, you know, there's times at which it was hard and your confidence feels shaken and you're like, okay. Um, but I guess, so that would have been maybe 2018 or 20, sorry, like 2020, very beginning of the year, we started going out to publishers. I finished it um, 
I, I sent the you know full manuscript to the Faulkner Society again. Um, in the midst of a couple of rejections, I got news that it had won the Faulkner Society Award, um, which was very cool. And then I think it was probably like January, February of 2021 that we, um, or sorry, very, very late 2020 that we signed uh, with Blackstone. Um, and then from there, and I think this is typical, it's like 18 months. So you know, the first couple months are actually weirdly idle. And then, um, and then it was working with a development editor, um, which is like, you know, big plot points, uh, major shifts, major additions, major deletions. Um, and then from about eight months out, it was just like copy editing artwork. And then um, probably, you know, six months before the pub date, uh, I had an actual physical copy, which was like an amazing thing to get um, a box of. Um, oh. And then it was, you know, off to reviews and stuff like that. How much did it change uh, during that, that developmental editing process uh, with the publisher? Was it like a, was it a lot of big changes or like, you know, uncomfortably so, or is it just a couple things here and there? Um, no, and that's, I mean, that's a nice thing about talking to, you know, people before they actually buy the book is like, if somebody wanted to like completely derail your entire plot line. Um, and there were, there were people who initially were like, you know, if you're willing to move this around, like we would, we would look at this. And I think it's a decision that, you know, everyone has to make separately. But for me, it was important to keep the, the story more or less intact. There's entire chapters that were added. There were chapters that were more or less deleted. Um, and there were a lot of things that were shifted around. Um, it's certainly a much stronger book, you know, post editing. Um, and I feel like, very, very lucky that we didn't have any major disagreements on like, this is going to make the ver the book better versus worse. Mm -hmm. um, and like, overall, it's just such a thrill, um, especially, you know, for a, a debut to have someone else taking your work, you know, professionally seriously. Mm -hmm. And like, okay, well, this is, you know, how is this going to look to the world? And it's, um, it's really like formative experience. It's cool. Um, but not that much changed in a big way. And then I was very lucky to have an editor who also was okay with me. Um, I like, I'm kind of rhythm obsessed in, in writing and I really want like the syllables of a sentence to line up a certain way. And sometimes commas or like correct punctuation gets in the way of that. <laughs> and, and he was totally on board with that. He was like, you know, as long as it's not confusing, um, I'm good with this and we can go ahead with it. And that meant a lot to me because it's uh, just like a little tick that the, the wrong punctuation can really mess up the flow of something. And I'm definitely like flow obsessed with, with sentence structure. That's interesting. What, um, how did you get flow obsessed? Or how, or obviously you're, I mean, did you just di discover one day that that was your thing? I find Everybody's got a thing. Uh, I don't know. I, I think my, the first things that I really read really seriously were like, I used to love poetry um, mm -hmm. way before I, I got into fiction. And like the whole idea of meter and rhythm um, are just incredibly important to me. Uh, mm -hmm. Like all of my favorite books are books that I think are really musical and really, um, you know, people who, who treat the sentence like something with 
you know, it, it's, it's kind of like a musical score. You have a rhythm and, you know, there's certainly times when you don't need to hold to it, um, but you should always be kind of aware of it and at least aware of what, you know, what a sentence is doing, what it could be. Um, and there's times at which you, you know, you explicitly want something to, to not sound musical and you mm -hmm. want it to be kind of like ugly and raw, but that's also a decision. Um, so I don't know, I, I, I grew up playing a lot of music and doing a lot of poetry. And I think it always just like stuck in my head. You, um, you're currently an MFA candidate at the new school. Is that still currently an MFA candidate? So, um, so obviously you didn't need the MFA in order to get published. Um, but what has that experience been like for you? And what made you decide to, to, to move forward with the MFA? Yeah, so um, actually it was kind of funny. I think I got my acceptance letter to the MFA program. Like it was in the same month that I learned that this was being published. Mm -hmm. um, and it was like a really kind of surreal experience. Um, I kind of knew that I wanted to do it anyway, just because I always felt like I missed out on having workshop. And there's a really big difference between, you know, reading your own work and being like, this is great because you, you wouldn't write it if you didn't think it was great. But um, seeing specifically what, you know, other people, uh, it, it's like, it, it's so invaluable to be able to know what your peers think of different parts of your work in like a very targeted way. Um, and, you know, as someone who had never had a workshop experience before, it was like, really just like such a pleasure for me to you know have three semesters of that especially this was you know 2020 that we started so mm -hmm. uh, my first classes were September 2020 um and basically the next three semesters is just all like workshop and literature stuff so I read a lot of stuff that I'd never been exposed to uh both you know published works and like student stuff um and got like really incredible feedback from a broad array of people. And it was just like an amazing experience. And I know people are fairly split on the MFA question, um, like, you know, whether it's necessary and I definitely don't think it's necessary, but it's like, I don't know, for, for someone who had never had a workshop before in any kind of rigorous way, it was like mm -hmm. really just a wonderful experience. Do you, uh, do you have a particular writing routine? Do you like get up first thing every morning and write or does it just, how's, what's your routine? Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to admit this. I listen to like a lot of audiobooks, So I almost- I think that's fine. To... <laughs> um, I almost never listen to music. I, I just do a lot of audiobooks, like when I'm running, when I'm walking. Well, you're hearing the rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was doing that and then I, I mostly write by taking notes um, and again I don't know if I'm supposed to admit this because I feel like I'm supposed to have a moleskin but um, I just do it on my like, phone note app and, mm -hmm. uh, and I take like really long notes like pages and pages a week um, and then I the first thing I do when I'm gonna like sit down and write is I just basically transcribe those so I you know I rewrite them um, you know clean up little errors and things like that and I had a really nice experience with them in college my senior year I was able to take a um 
independent study with Oscar Huelos, who's like a Pulitzer Prize winner for the Mambo Kings play Songs of Love. And he really impressed upon me that like your subconscious should be doing most of the work when you're writing. Um, and I kind of find that that works. Like if I'm thinking about a story, I'm like at a certain point in a book um, and then I'm walking around and I'm, you know, reading a lot of different things. Everything kind of gets filtered through this um, lens of like, okay, how do we keep writing this book that you're working on right now? Um, and all my notes will kind of pertain to that, not exactly to the part that I need them to, um, but somewhere. And then I, I find like the the experience of just organizing notes that you take, like kind of cathartic and it's, you know, you're doing something, you're not just staring at a blank piece of paper or screen. Um, for me, it's a screen. Mm-hmm. And that helps and it, it helps to, you know, just, you know, as soon as I sit down to actually write, like I kind of know what I'm writing already. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that like the, the process of creation is done while I'm actually typing, um, which to me is kind of a relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people do it very differently. What are you reading right now or listening to? <laughs> um, what am I reading right now? So I, I'm in the middle of the Zuckerbound, Zuckerman Bound uh, trilogy, which is the Philip Roth. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of because I'm, the thing that I'm writing, I, well, I, I, I'm kind of shaping what I'm reading by what I want to be writing. And I'm kind mm-hmm. of doing a book now where I'm like alternating between close thirds of different people. And um, one of the characters I want to be kind of a Zuckerman-ish type figure. Um, and so I'm reading a lot of that. But um, what I'm listening to right now is Under the Volcano, which I've read um, like a ton, a ton of times. And I think it's, for me, like by far the best book um, of, of all time. And just like the rhythm of it, everything, like his sentence structure, like the way that he constructs the whole novel, um, it's really like symphonic and it's just such a masterpiece. And it's such like a pleasure to listen to because it's, it's, it's kind of like its own music. What do you know now that you uh, wish you had known before publishing this first novel? Oh, so many things. Um, (laughs) I guess, you know, the first is like that not all critics are good critics or not all critics like like your work, (laughs) which should be obvious. um, But, you know, there's this like, release thing that happens when you you know you put the last edits on something and then you can't really touch it anymore and like some things that you know maybe you wish you could explain in chapter four you don't get to explain them and you know i i agree with that i think like you know for a writer it's important that all the meaning is on the page um that there should not have to be anything explanatory um but there's something super salient about wanting to add something that you can't and just like how final it is when you say like okay it's ready um so that's really interesting and yeah i guess the other one is like how much people read into your work and how much people read into your characters and how much people expect that you are in some way reflected in like all if not most (laughs) characters (laughs) <laughs> I have like some extraordinarily personal questions at 
readings and they'll substitute the character's name for you. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, and, you know, I'm like, well, why read it and then come back? <laughs> okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up on my usual last question, which is which is a fun one. Um, if or when your book is made into a movie or TV series, what would you pick for the theme song? Oh, um, that is a really fun one. I don't know. Maybe uh, I guess it kind of like has to be a Bruce Springsteen song. So. Um, maybe like like glory days because it has the same you know level of um, irony as it's kind of like that goodbye Columbus you know dissonance of really happy but also kind of sad yeah and yeah I like maybe it something. Daniel Turtel thank you so much for coming on today it's really been a pleasure talking to you and I've really learned a lot so thanks for that too thank you so much this is so fun Thanks for joining us on Literary Prospects. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.